Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is the annual Fed get-together. And the host of that get-together is the Kansas City Fed President, Esther George. She sat down with Bloomberg's Mike McKee and Kathleen Hayes. If you think about how tight the labor market is, we are operating with an unemployment rate that is below, I think, what most people would consider to be a normal or natural rate of unemployment. So that suggests to me that to get loosening in that labor market, to see some of this tightness come out of the economy, that you may well see uh, more unemployment uh, in the process of this tightening cycle. Well, you got two camps. One that says you need to keep going no matter what, and another that says you need to be careful because these are real people who lose jobs. So how much unemployment is too much? Well, I think anytime someone is unemployed that doesn't want to be, you care about that. I think in the long run, which is where I'm focused, you have to have a sustainable economy. And the best path to full employment is going to be conditions of price stability. And so I think for the long run, that's where we have to be focused uh, to bring inflation down so that we can have those conditions. So what are you looking at when you see the housing market? We saw pending home sales, but they're the weakest again since the beginning or before the pandemic even. Mortgage rates have shot up. We know all kinds of people who backed out of wanting to buy a home because they're expecting prices to fall more. So is that uh, a welcome tightening in financial conditions? Is it a little bit more than the Fed has bargained for? Well, I think it's been one of the first places we've seen it. So you saw that initial tightening in mortgage rates come very quickly um, early in the tightening cycle. And that, of course, does affect the economics of someone being able to afford a mortgage, make that payment Mm -hmm. they need to pay. So in some sense, this isn't surprising to see these numbers come off, to see sales come down. Whether the actual prices, the housing valuation uh, comes down consistent with that, I think we will still have to see, and I suspect that could be to come. You know, you just mentioned that uh, the funds rate could have to go above 4% Mm -hmm. to get to the point where you're slowing down the economy and and really slowing down demand. Uh, John Taylor, uh, author of The Taylor Rule and More, Mm -hmm. who you know well, uh, just a couple of days ago on Bloomberg Television told me that he thinks the Fed should be aiming for 5% or even more if inflation does not start coming down more rapidly? Well, I think certainly if we don't see a response in bringing this imbalance between demand and supply uh, to bear on inflation, um, we will again 
have to consider where that uh, short-term interest rate is going to have to move. So you wouldn't rule out something that high? Well, I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I'm not suggesting that's where we're going. But the other thing, Kathleen, that I, I think we don't talk enough about is the sizable balance sheet that the Federal Reserve has and that we will be doing uh, runoff of that balance sheet. And again, understanding how these two things work together, um, I think it's going to be important to see how that runoff uh, works as we go through the year. And that's the other part of this rate increase environment that is important to watch, I think. What's the danger of recession that you see, and what would you see it in, in terms of indications that we are slipping into contraction? So, you know, again, when I go around my region, I don't hear many signs of that uh, from our contacts. What I hear is tight labor market, price pressures, supply constraints going on here. I will tell you when I look at global growth, though, so we've seen the IMF cut its uh, forecast for global growth. We see the issues in China. We see Europe. And we know that that uh, reduction in demand uh, will affect our own growth here simultaneous with the tightening cycle that the Fed is underway. So how it, how it comes out in balance uh, over time is hard to know. But I think, again, the focus on watching these imbalances resolve themselves are going to have multiple factors that will come to bear on them. President Biden has now uh, introduced a student loan forgiveness program, $10,000 or $20,000, depending on the program you were in per person, which is going to cost billions of dollars. And a lot of economists are worried this is going to be inflationary. Do you see it working against your goals? So I haven't looked at this particular uh, decision that came out, but I think always fiscal policy is something we will take in to understand. Is it an impact in the short term? Does it happen over a period of time that makes its particular impact to the economy there? So I don't have a sense of the particular impact here, again, given the size relative to our economy and uh, what we're looking at in consumption. um, I'd be hard pressed to say what I think its impact is right now. Speaking of your district, speaking of the world uh, economy and what's driving it right now, drought is big. It's, it's it, across much of the Western United States. In Europe now, uh, where is it, is it the point yet where it enters into a factor in policy? And is something like drought and what it could do to production, our cultural production, all kinds of things, is it potentially a drag on the economy, which tilts you toward recession potentially? Is it something that boosts inflation? Because a lot of prices are going to get even higher, particularly for food. Yeah. So issues that affect our real economy are things that I think we have long taken into account. You think about a region like mine where agriculture um, is prominent. The idea that weather events, the idea that commodity prices all come to bear on how the economy does, what it contributes to GDP, where the constraints are um, in that sector. I think these events just are continuation of some of that, and the magnitude of them may change. But I will tell you, for example, in the Kansas City Fed District, drought in the western part of our region does have impact on the yields that are coming off these crops now. It will matter over time. Uh, Farmers are used to dealing with that in many respects. Banks that lend to them are used to dealing with that. And I think in that sense, um, it will have the same impact on our policy that we see across many sectors of the economy. A very near-term decision. 
and every Fed bank president, every Fed official gets asked this all the time. Um, and especially you, because you did dissent against the first 75 basis point rate hike. And you just recently said you're going to continue to debate the, the needed size, 50 or 75, with your Fed colleagues. So again, when you see how well the economy is holding up and how little inflation has come down this far, um, what is your baseline? Is your baseline 50 and you're going to have to be talked into 75? What's going to tilt the balance for you? I mean, I supported 75 at the uh, July meeting, and I find it an interesting time when we debate 50 or 75, because who would have thought 50 would have yeah. been a more dovish view uh, than uh, 75? I think for me, coming into this September meeting, we're going to be looking again at an inflation report. We're going to be looking at a labor market report. And I think trying to draw some sense of whether we see continuation of things that we've seen over the summer, uh, whether progress looks like it's meaningful in some way. I do look forward to getting back to a sustainable uh, rate path. Uh, that was my issue uh, at the June meeting. Again, no, no disagreement about the direction we are headed. But I think just being mindful of uh, the destination and how quickly we get there at a time when we're reducing the balance sheet. You've been doing this for a long time. The old adage was, don't fight the Fed. Why do you think the markets are fighting the Fed now and not listening to what you've been saying about how serious you are about taking on inflation? I don't know what drives the markets, Mike. I probably would not be uh, well positioned to say that. Certainly, it is important for our communications to be clear because we want financial conditions to tighten along with the direction we are moving around policy. So I think it puts a premium on being clear in our communication of having resolve toward the end game here. And again, the end game is to bring inflation back to our 2% target. And um, that's challenging in the environment we're in. We're coming off an unprecedented period. The economy, I think, in some respects, is still sorting itself out. We have global factors to take into that. So there's a lot to think about. I'm sure markets are thinking about that even as we proceed with this interest rate increase cycle. You're retiring at the end of the year. This is your last economic symposium. How do you think economics and the economy and the Fed have changed during your tenure? Well, a lot has been done. When you think about the great financial crisis uh, where the introduction of quantitative easing came about, zero interest rate policy um, has been an extraordinary time uh, for the economy, for policy to think about um, how it responds to the economy. Also coming into a time when we have demographic changes, really broader changes around uh, the world. So. The world continues to evolve in ways that sometimes look clear to us, mm -hmm. sometimes don't. But um, well, in in this vein of, of here you are uh, about to uh, end the, your wonderful tenure at the Kansas City Fed. This last part I would think has one of, been one of the very di most difficult parts: seeing inflation get out of control the way it has. What's the biggest lesson learned for you, uh, for the Federal Reserve after having gotten into this situation and now needing to get out of it? So Kathleen, really, I'm going to answer that question by saying this is one of the things I'm looking forward to with the conference that we have this year, is really reassessing how we understood constraints over the last couple of decades, finding ourselves again in a place um, of high inflation, which we hadn't seen for some 40 years, and really being reminded what are those factors that um, are important to price stability. We know as our mandate uh, that that hasn't changed 
for a long time, even as the economy has evolved, even as the toolkit uh, may have evolved. But getting back to really thinking about um, how price stability is achieved, even as the world changes, I think, is going to be an important part of this discussion here at Jackson Hole Symposium. That was the Kansas City Fed President Esther George sitting down with Michael McKee and Kathleen Hayes. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's get to the theme of the moment in Jackson yeah. Hole, Wyoming. Here's the title, Reassessing Constraints on the Economy and Policy. Very good. Let's have that conversation now with Glenn Herbert, the Professor of Finance and Economics at the Columbia Business School. Glenn, great to have you with us, sir. Can you frame how challenging this moment is for this Fed chair? Well, I think it's, it's very challenging for two reasons. One, it's momentous time in the economy with both significant uncertainty about inflation and recession. Two, it's important for him and, and communication. I, I actually have a old whip inflation now button here from the Ford administration. And I think Chair Powell needs to do a bit better in expressing more some candor about the past, not necessarily a mea culpa, but for what happened and about the future, what it's going to take, as well as talking about the difficult path of getting inflation all the way back down to 2%. Getting it down to 4 may be straightforward, getting it to 2 much harder. Glenn Albert, the arc of Republican economics represented by so many here at Jackson Hole is that the system will solve itself. Is a general statement, is the religion of supply-side economics or the religion that the American economy can heal itself, has that failed? I don't think so. I mean, the economy has a lot of self-equilibrating mechanisms. The question is over what time period and in the presence of such large shocks. I think policy still has a role to play. It had a role to play in the COVID pandemic. And the Fed just can't wait to let inflation work itself out. So, uh, Dean Hubbard, Glenn, what's your view on our debate that we were just having about whether uh, this Fed chair will speak to markets, what he will say about their enthusiasm about some sort of pivot or some sort of pause in uh, Fed rate hikes? Well, I think the message he could give, going back to the point I said about candor, about where we have to go, 
is what it would take to reduce inflation. I, I don't think he's literally going to lecture the markets and say the stock market's too high or something like that. But I think he could outline a path that says we have work to do. Getting that work done requires tighter financial conditions. You know, speaking in general terms, I, I think that would be wise to make that kind of communication to the public and to the markets. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I keep mentioning this because it really caught my attention, about whether we have seen the end of the low-rate policies. This is what PIMCO has put out there. And the possibility of inflation remaining high for a longer period of time due to a deglobalization, due to structurally higher commodity prices, due to a lack of investment over the past few years. Do you buy into this theory? And if the Fed does, what does that mean in terms of how high rates have to stay and for how long? I think there's certainly something to the fact that we have demographic changes, structural changes, globalization changes. I'd be hesitant to draw straight lines and say that's just going to be permanent, but I think it's definitely something to watch. To my mind, the concern for the Fed ought to be is probably two worlds, one in which we keep inflation expectations anchored around 2%, the other in which they go off kilter. I think that's the challenge the chair faces, and you'll have to, quote, do what it takes to make that happen. Hey, Glenn. Thank you, sir. It's good to hear from you, as always. My pleasure. From Columbia Business School. We're really happy to say that joining us is Mohammed Al-Aryan of Bloomberg Opinion and Queen's College, Cambridge, a man who, unlike this Fed chairman, called this, called this inflation spiral. Mohammed, let's go straight there. The challenge for this Fed chair at this annual Fed get-together, how big is it? It's huge, John, and good morning. It's huge because he's speaking to multiple audiences, as you pointed out, but it's also huge because he's got to deal with issues with respect to the past, the present, and the future. He's got to figure out how he's going to address his speech last year that proved so off the mark. He's got to figure out what to signal about current monetary policy. And let's not forget that we have a framework that is not fit for purpose. We have a policy framework fit for a world of deficient aggregate demand, and we are in a world for deficient aggregate supply. So put all this together, the challenge is very big, John. Mohammed, you're focused on a new word, stickiness, and you've been focused on that for a number of months now. From the incoming information, how sticky do you think that inflation dynamic is? And how much does that tell you about how much work this chairman still has to do? So I worry that core inflation is going to prove more sticky than the Fed anticipates right now. We have wages are starting to be a driver of higher <coughs> costs and eventually higher prices. So while headline inflation is going to continue to go down <coughs> for the next two months, core may prove quite sticky. And that's a real problem for them. Mm -hmm. For those of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television, you just saw a little bit of light going out. That was one of the grizzly bears standing up and getting in the way of, of the light here. They're watching uh, here this morning as well. Dr. Alarian, people forget why you are Dr. Alarian, and it has to do with the acuity and uh, uh, concision of your game theory. You codified in the modern day the phrase T decision. Let's distill that down to the T decision that Chairman Powell has to make between now and a data-busy September. And it's an important one, Tom, because right now the Fed is so late that it's looking at two challenges. It's looking at putting the inflation genie back into the bottle, and it's looking at not creating too much damage to economic growth and inequality, something that you have been speaking to all morning. <clears throat> Look, I don't think he has any choice He's got to put the inflation genie back into the bottle. You know, there's an old saying that 
macro stability isn't everything, right. but without it, you have nothing. So they've got to put that inflation genie back into the bottle and do it in a determined and sustainable fashion. Okay. But this is the politics of it, Dr. O'Leary. And if you have a partial differentiation from 8% U.S. inflation, the haves are benefited when you get to 6% or 5%. The have-nots, the great middle class, are still flat on their back. What is your timeline where all of America finally gets inflation back into the bottle? So it's going to take some time because the Fed has been asleep at the wheel. Um, and that's unfortunate. Tom, what you raise is, is much bigger. It is, speaks to the Fed being necessary but not sufficient to address our policy issues. Um, you've got to deal with the inequality aspect. You've got to protect the most vulnerable segments of the population with focused um, uh, fiscal policy. And you've got a lot to, to do a lot more on productivity and equal opportunity. So it's a long list. But the Fed has to focus on inflation and has to do it in a more committed fashion than it's done it so far. So it's been trying to sound, Mohammed, committed, right? I mean, they've basically been saying inflation is their number one issue that they're facing. Why is the market not hearing it? Two reasons, Lisa. One is the Fed itself. Let's not forget that Chair Powell hinted, not hinted, stated that we were at the neutral rate. The minute the market heard that, it moved, and it moved in a significant fashion, and all the talk about pivot started being amplified. So that's one reason that the communication hasn't been consistent, and that's been a problem for the last year. And the second issue is that the market is looking at the impact on growth, is looking at, this, at the potential impact on markets, and as John said earlier today, remembers the fourth quarter of 2018, remembers the Fed blinking, so it believes when push comes to shove, the Fed is going to blink again, that we're going to have a flip-flopping Fed. Mohamed, what I hear from you is that you don't think this Fed blinks anytime soon. I don't know, John. I know what they should do, which is they should not blink. Um, but I, it's been very difficult to call this Fed. This Fed has unfortunately failed at analysis, failed at forecast, failed at communication. So it's very difficult to say what this Fed is going to do. It's easier to say what it should do, but it's, mu it's much harder to say what it should, what it's going to do. And that's why you get this disconnect that you've been talking about <clears throat> between the markets and the Fed. Easier to find out what you think. So let's go there and wrap up this segment with you on what you think. Larry Summers called that neutral comment, analytically indefensible. You said on neutral, and I think you were a little bit more diplomatic about it when we last spoke, you said the zip code for neutral was higher than where we are right now. Mohammed, what is the zip code for neutral, and how on earth do we know with inflation where it is and where rates where they are right now? So I don't know specifically where it is, and I've been warning against spurious precision. There are so many structural changes going on. We are changing liquidity regimes. I said earlier, we're going from a world of deficient aggregate demand to a world of deficient aggregate supply. That's the world we live in now. No one knows for sure where neutral is. So you've got to try to figure out as you go along the way. And you mustn't attempt this purest precision, because if you do, the market is going to jump immediately to conclusions, and then you're going to have to undo it. You know, the Fed itself, Fed officials have walked back that comment. It didn't take many days for other Fed officials to come out and say, we're not at neutral. Dr. Larian, I want to go to the international tone here, uh, central banker of the world. And the singular feature I have is the focus is on Plaza Accord-like partners, 
when there is EM. Forget about idiosyncratic Turkey out over 18 lira. What will be the shock of Powell action to a more fragile emerging market in third world economies? It's a high risk situation, Tom. You have higher rates, so more uncertain market conditions. You have global economic growth slowing much faster than most people expected, and you have a stronger dollar. Historically, that has not been a favorable mix for, for emerging economies. So right now, how much does this bleed back to the U.S. economy? How do you bleed through the pain that you're seeing in Europe, in China, into slowing U.S. growth and entering a recession? You know, Lisa, the quick and easy is to say that everybody has an inflation problem, everybody has a growth problem. And that's true. But go further, we have massive dispersion. Um, growth, the U.S. is in a much better place than most other countries. Central bank policy, if we think that the Fed faces tough challenges, look at the ECB. Not only do they have high inflation, they have a much more fragile economy and they have the risk of fragmentation. So I think the theme going forward is going to have a strong element of dispersion come into it. And that makes markets have to spend a lot more time thinking about relative values and not just the overall beta, if you like. When you take a look at the framework, policymakers are starting to think more about a structural inflation that will last a much longer time due to deglobalization and due to the sort of structurally higher commodity costs. The market is not buying it. They are still betting on some sort of return to what we have experienced over the past few decades. We know that, uh, Mohammed, you err on the structural side. You say that's probably where we're going. What will it take for the markets to wake up to that reality? And how violent is that pivot? It's going to take time. Um, you know, I'm a buyer of the notion that we are changing macro regimes. As I said earlier, from deficient aggregate demand to deficient aggregate supply. You pointed out to the Wall Street Journal article earlier that listed three reasons why supply is going to be a challenge in the next few years. Globalization, deglobalization, etc. So we are in a different regime. I think the economists recognize this. I think the Fed officials semi-recognize this. Markets are still in a cyclical mindset. And it's the mindset that has served them well. So it's going to take some time and it's going to take persistence on the part of central banks to try and convince markets that they have to think structurally and not just cyclically. So, Mohammed, with that in mind, what are the characteristics of this new market regime? What do you think the defining characteristics are and will be? I think resilience is going to be the key issue, John. I think you've got to have resilient names in your portfolios, whether it's in credit, whether it's in equities. Um, and resilience means balance sheet, means management teams. Resilience is going to be the most important element to help you navigate this world. Can we talk about the resilience of Europe and finish there? We touched on that at the start of this segment. You talked about the difficulty of the ECB. European gas prices are up by 6.5% again today, Mohammed. I still don't think we fully realise how tough things could be in Europe later this year. Do you sense the same thing from the people you speak to? And can you frame how bad you think this is going to be later this year? It's going to be hard. Um, it's going to be a cost-of-living crisis. You see it already in the UK, and you see the reaction in the UK much earlier than you're seeing it in continental Europe. And on top of that, there's going to be massive demand destruction going on. So 
Europe is looking at a tough six to nine months. I, like some others that have been on your show, don't see how Europe escapes recession. I hate saying that, but the outlook is one of a recessionary economy, and let's hope it's shallow and short. Uh, Mohammed, Augustin Karstens of Mexico, now general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, is published today in the FT with Chris Giles. It's an extremely important piece about our behavior, our individual game theory with higher inflation. What is the when where we begin to embed high inflation behavior? Are we there now or does it wait for next year? So it depends who we are. Um, if you are the striking um, ports uh, um, workers in the UK or underground workers, you're there. You're already there. Your inflationary expectations have changed. You want to protect your standard of living. It's only a matter of time until they seek not only to, to protect against past erosion in purchasing power, but also future erosion in, in purchasing power. So you're there. In, in the US, you're not there yet. Um, but slowly you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. And what, what we're going to find, Tom, and I know you know that in terms of game theory, is that initial conditions vary tremendously. Some workers and some <coughs> companies are going to be able to protect their margins, yeah. to protect their purchasing powers. Others will not. Mohammed, wonderful to catch up with you. You're getting comfortable in Tom's seat over there. I am. Would I love like the microphone. It's a bit cold, though, I must say. It's colder here than it is where you are. <laughs> there you go. Mohamed Alarian out of New, New York today. Mohamed, thank you. Just absolutely brilliant, as you always are. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Bank of America, Savita Subramaniam joins us now. And Savita, fantastic to have you with us. I wanted to start with a note that you actually put out a number of weeks ago. And the title was something like, why are we so happy with 8.5% CPI? Savita, why was this market so happy with 8.5% CPI? Look, I think that part of it was the idea that we're off peak. But our point was, Sometimes the second derivative doesn't matter. Sometimes it's the first derivative you want to pay attention to. And 8.5% CPI is really far away from 
two or three percent, which is what we believe the market is pricing in. Um, I think that, you know, when I hear the bullish arguments for, you know, kind of justification for the rally that we've seen from July uh, or, you know, from June, I guess, um, it's, it's two things. It's one, we've moved past peak inflation, and, but wages are still strong. So the consumer is still going to be OK, therefore soft landing. That's one bullish argument that I disagree with. And the second bullish argument that I disagree with is that we've seen earnings better than feared. We've seen results better than feared. And everybody points to really strong top line and, um, you know, 15 percent sales growth for the S&P. The problem with that is that most of the work for sales was coming from energy. Energy grew sales by 80%. Everything else was fairly lackluster. And then when you adjust for inflation, when you take that 9% print of inflation out of 2Q sales, the sales for the S&P 500 X energy were essentially flat. More companies in the S&P 500 undershot inflation in sales, couldn't grow sales faster than pricing, which is really a, you know, kind of a weird setup um, versus the other half that managed to beat, beat uh, CPI. So I think that what we're, point, what we're all looking for are reasons to get more bullish, but the reasons are pretty thin, if you ask me. Um, on peak CPI and strong, still strong job costs, I mean, I see that as, as still strong labor, I see, I see that as um, overwhelmingly negative because what that means is pricing power for the average corporation is starting to wane, demand is starting to wane, but wages, which are the, the biggest depressant on corporate margins for the S&P 500, are sticky and high. I mean, why are we celebrating about this? I just don't get it. And that was the essence of your notes. Savita, we caught up with Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley yesterday, who's very much on the same page as you at the moment on some of these issues. Take a listen to what he had to say. The whole fire and ice narrative is coming back into play. We're in a downtrend. And until the market can get back above that downtrend, I think to be making some you know, grandiose call about new highs is, is, quite frankly, it's irresponsible given what's going on with the Fed and QT coming as Bob laid out. It's going to be a lot worse than people uh, have experienced so far. Price is wrong and the earnings are wrong again, which means the uh, attractiveness, the risk reward today could be almost as bad as it was back in January. Savita, you're back at 3,600 on the S&P 500. That's your forecast. What's the Fed's role in that move lower that you're looking for? Look, I don't think the short end of the curve and what the Fed's doing at the short end matter as much as the long end. And I think that what's bizarre to me is that, you know, I think this laser focus on, you know, sort of inflation prints and on a monthly basis and real-time reads on inflation. And what is the Fed going to do? Are they going to hide 50 basis points or 25 you know, are they going to start cutting? I think all of that is second to what happens at the long end of the curve. And, you know, I like that, 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 that phrase, complexity of the moment, because I think this is a very complex moment for equities. And the reason I say that is the duration of the S&P 500 is still above 30 years. We're looking at a 30-year zero-coupon bond. So what that means is that a mere 50 basis point change in the cost of equity capital, which is more influenced by the long end, could drive the market either really high or really low from here. Right. And I think that's what makes up the complexity of the moment for equities. Savita, Brian Moynihan takes immense pride in studying the granularity of American business. It is the franchise of your Bank of America. 
What are you and the sell side at Bank of America, the research analysts, what are they saying about how corporations are adapting and adjusting to these complexities? Well, you know, you're right. So corporations are adapting and adjusting, and it's really marvelous to watch. Uh, but I think that what that requires is a fair amount of capital spending from the big multinationals that are in the process of, you know, rejiggering supply chains, supply chains, which is a complicated and long process that costs a lot of money. Um, they're also in the process of automating labor, which has gotten that much more expensive. So this is all really good for long-term productivity of corporations. We haven't seen a real capex cycle in a long time because. Earnings have been void by low rates, buybacks, all sorts of machinations that aren't real economic growth. But I think what we're seeing now is the beginnings of a real, you know, a real growth cycle driven by companies getting more productive. And that is very bullish for the S&P 500. Unfortunately, I think it takes a little while to get there. And it also costs a lot in terms of capital spending. So what we like within the market are the more domestic plays that could benefit from that CapEx cycle. And yeah. Jill Hall, our SMID strategist, has been talking about this, um, you know, on your show uh, quite a bit. So I think that's a great area to start to deploy capital. But multinationals for the time being. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think multinationals. Well, no, it's, it's bullish talk. It's bullish talk from Savita. Well, hold on a second, Savita. This is actually exactly where I wanted to go because basically everyone's calling me a bear and dressing me up as one on the internet. But I am wondering, from your perspective, which is okay. I, I accept it. I embrace it. That I, to me I'm not scared well. of it. Um, yes. I, I will just say that there is this sort of bullish million. tilt. There, there is no. I, I, I embrace tilt. it. <laughs> but if you, you know, what is the after 3,600, right? This is the distinction between the long term bulls and the long term bears, right? 3,600, is that the new low that is catharsis that then leads to adjusting and adapting of Tom Keene? Or is this a more protracted loss in the momentum and, frankly, the valuation of U.S. equities? Look, I think this is all happening at a warp speed. So at the beginning of the year, our long-term model was pointing to negative returns for the next 10 years. Today, the good news is that after this massive drop in the market and lower, not low, but lower multiples, that model is spitting out you know, mid-single-digit returns for the S&P 500 for the next 10 years. That's a much better setup, a much better entry point. I do think that point-in-time point targets are fraught with all sorts of problems. But I will tell you this, I think that the fact that just a mere 50 basis point change in the cost of equity capital, either long rates or the risk premium, could drive us to yeah. our target of 3,600 makes yeah. me worried about the downside risk. Okay. Samit, I got a key question, and it's for all of Global Wall Street. They know you own the high ground on ESG investing. Essentially, you invented it. Is ESG investing dead? Where is it in a year? I'm serious. Where is it in a year? Well, you know, I think what the problem right now is that investors are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And we've done a lot of great work on, you know, and we've talked about our work on your show. ESG investing is nuanced. It's not one size fits all. Different sectors have different factors that are more important for driving. Uh, you know, social factors are more uh, important for labor-intensive innovators, uh, environmental factors are more important for uh, energy and materials. So it's not just some kind of, you know, one size fits all, apply this rating to your entire portfolio and you're done. 
But we do think that there are a lot of ESG considerations that are being ignored in this, uh, you know, kind of refusal to even think about ESG in an environment where it's drawing a lot of fire. Um, So I think it's a it's a complex, nuanced topic. But I still think that there are lots of ways to make money. John, this is a huge deal. I, mean, I agree with you. Huge. She I remember, catching up. A lot of I remember catching up with Savisa and you. Was it in Davos? How many years ago was that? Uh, well, it, three it years was ago? Three, four years ago. Something like that. Big she change. and Brian Moynihan said, we're going to actually do the math of ESG. And that's where they provided leadership. Who would have thought we'd be talking about coal all over again in 2020? <laughs> exactly. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.